Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Today, we're talking about child safety, including the importance of learning CPR and first aid, and how to make your nest a safe environment for young children. My guest today is the owner and founder of Save a Little Life. It's a small but thriving health education company started back in 1999. He and his staff provide specialized courses for expectant and recently delivered parents, family members, and care providers, as well as courses for families with toddlers and older children. He has 40 years' experience as a registered nurse working in acute care at large medical centers. He's been an advanced and basic life support instructor with the American Heart Association since 1989. Richard Pass, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elliot. Happy to be here. First of all, do you have any idea how many people you've taught CPR or first aid? I did the math recently. You did? Uh, yeah. I, it's going to be pretty you know, pretty, <laughs> pretty vague, but I think the numbers are well into the uh, fifteen to 20,000 range. That's I think incredible. we've touched. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. I think about it. It's uh, it's fantastic. Let's go back a little bit. How did you get started in this uh, in this career, and then what led to starting Save a Little Life? Sure. Well, you know, when I first uh, thought about becoming a registered nurse, it was kind of an uh, odd selection for a lot of folks, and even for myself. But uh, and odd, I, odd in what way? Um, well, at the time, one out of twenty registered nurses were men, and so okay. we were an oddity. Uh, in in the uh, profession. I don't know how you feel because I'm a doula. There you go. We're a very small group on Facebook. Very, of, much, very uh, much so. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, once I realized that uh, it isn't so much the gender as it is the person and mm-hmm. uh, how they care for people, uh, that pretty much went away. But still, I'd get that occasional. You're a nurse, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you're a male nurse, yeah. right? I said, yep. That's, about, that's correct on both counts. Um, but uh, so I, I worked uh, mostly in acute care, um, and I was uh, I had done some work in CPR, some CPR training. Uh, you know, back in the day, it was very complex, especially the advanced life support stuff. Uh, but we learned um, how to sort of make it work for us uh, in the hospitals, and um, you know, if there's a need in those situations, we respond quickly and as a team. Uh, I had been working at Cedars for quite a while and had. Uh, some friends asked me about what do I do if my baby or small child uh, is choking or if they you know, are pulled out of the water? What do we do? Uh, because really this had not been taught uh, in any great extent to the public. Um, there are courses and there are some, some you know, organizations that are probably well known that teach it. But uh, the lay population, I don't believe, was very well served by the way in which we taught this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, tended to be uh, focused a little bit more on uh, technical issues and using some medical terms and some other things. And I think also the, uh, just the way that we, we, we approach the, this, this is a home-related event most likely. This is something that happens at home. It doesn't happen in a hospital. And people who respond are people who probably don't know very much about this. So I tapped into this uh, sort of unexpectedly to a, uh, a population of parents, expectant and recently delivered, who, uh, who wanted this service, who really wanted it. Uh, so it started trickling in uh, in the very early 90s. Uh, and then with a little bit of advertising and a little promotion, uh, we hooked up with a couple of other companies and, and uh, things took off. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't expect it to be as popular as it was. 
Uh, I wound up quitting that job and letting it go and doing this pretty much full time uh, in addition to some other uh, teaching activities. Wow. Who would have thought that was going to happen? Yeah, I really <laughs> didn't think it was going to be something that would sustain itself. And next year, you know, we're going to be 20. So that's pretty remarkable in itself. Yeah, it's a big accomplishment. And um, are, are your classes mostly local? Or do you do them all here? Or do you, like now that online is possible, have you gone that route as well? Yeah, our courses are, are you know, this is a uh, brick-and-mortar kind of a thing. We, we either go to locations where uh, parents already shop or do certain kinds of activities related to their infant or small child, uh, or we come to the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make it, you know, easy for them. Uh, we bring all our, our materials, uh, and these are, uh, these are courses that are conducted um, in, a, in a pretty simple manner, but they do cover the essence of what we're trying to get across. And that, of course, is the, uh, the emphasis, first and foremost, on prevention, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that parents understand uh, the truth about where babies and small children tend to perish. Um, most people don't talk about this very much. Where do babies uh, die? Where do children die? And of what causes, what reasons? You mean injury-related? Uh, in many cases. Not so much in the, from the standpoint of, of an illness, but more so an accident or some sort of an injury. Uh, these are accidental deaths, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Centers for Disease Control keep these statistics. Uh, they're pretty well available. So what we've done is we've created, at least in the beginning of our program, um, probably half an hour or so, maybe a little longer, of, of an accident prevention checklist and a whole series of things that if parents pay attention to, uh, they can really reduce risk greatly for uh, any kind of untoward event. Are these things, when you say accident prevention checklist, are these things that within the home that when when you're preparing for a baby to come or if you've just had a baby that you that you do is this like baby proofing kind of stuff or uh, no we're not baby proofers in, in that sense yeah baby proofers come in and, and identify risk uh, in the home in very specific ways like this uh, is a pointy cor- corner there's a pointy on your corner table. this uh, outlet yeah. means a little pluggy thing. that's right and there's a steep staircase mm-hmm. there and there's a uh, an unstable cabinet over there that probably needs to be adhered to the wall and then uh, I came home one day and my wife had put a a lock on the toilet there was a toilet <laughs> lock and I remember it, it was such a good lock I couldn't figure out how to use it which left me in a, quite a predicament <laughs> I've had a couple of close calls in people's homes uh, some really good quality I, I think the locks. kids are probably better at getting these done than, yeah, I, than exactly. I would be uh, I had to yeah. go ask my kid hey how do you open this thing <laughs> really um, yeah so uh, baby proofers serve a very important function and one of the things we do is we have a, a resource list for parents we give them a numbers uh, of a number of different uh, uh, companies who do this sort of thing. We don't focus on just one. So we have that available. But the the accident prevention checklist that I refer to is really, um, you know, have you attended to those things that are most likely to take the lives of your little ones? So these come from uh, pretty hard data uh, between, for example, birth and year one. Uh, the focus tends to be more on SIDS prevention mm-hmm. and some suffocation-related issues. SIDS being sudden infant death syndrome. That's correct, sudden infant death syndrome. And I should just remind the audience, if they don't know, that within the last year or so, maybe a little longer, uh, the anti-SIDS uh, scientists and researchers have come up with a, a revised set of guidelines. Uh, and what's different about this set of guidelines is that it includes a slight 
kind of an offshoot of the primary SIDS uh, diagnosis. And of course, we know that uh, a SIDS diagnosis is generally a baby that is put down for a nap or for prolonged sleep and just doesn't wake up. The confounding thing, of course, for for everyone is that uh, you know on autopsy, many of these babies do not have any pathology or any reason for this to have happened. Mm-hmm. I think in some cases, parents would almost prefer to have a reason, sure, you know, just so they can at least they know can what happened. blame it on something, yeah. right? Um, but a number of these cases also um, turn out to be uh, what we call asphyxial events, where it turns out that the baby just can't get air. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control actually sent some uh, memos out a few years ago uh, talking about a particular uh, risk group, and that would be uh, infants who are who are earlier in their ability to roll over from their back to side or stomach. So the early roller uh, who is also swaddled. Mm-hmm. So we had this potential problem of, uh, of a baby who rolled over sooner than uh, parents anticipated and it really would depend on where their you know their mouth and head lay uh, in any given you know crib or, or sleeping space. So, but, but you're saying okay. So the recommendation to sleep on the back came to try to help prevent SIDS. Absolutely. Uh, but the combination of an early roller who's who doesn't have use of their arms because they're swaddled in, meaning they just get stuck with their head. They may not be able to breathe. That's exactly it. It it turned out to be uh, important enough for them to send out some memos and some uh, some information to those of us who teach these courses. Uh, And I pass it along to parents. I don't have a position one way or another on swaddling. I tell parents that's something that they need to decide upon. I talk Mm -hmm. to their uh, pediatricians and uh, do the research for themselves. So we're we're concerned about... uh, about just creating as safe an environment as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. There's no question that back sleeping is, is still the, by far the, the greatest hedge against a SIDS event. Um, but the, the offshoot that I referred to is now considered, uh, I think they call it sudden unexplained infant death. And I think that would be something where a baby just has something in its mouth or uh, uh, somehow preventing their airway from, from functioning. Mm-hmm. So it could be something in the throat, it could be something outside the baby. Uh, in the crib, for example, um, extra blanket or pillows or some stuffed animal. These are the kinds of things that. Uh, so these are things on the ch- on the accident prevention checklist. We talk about this stuff, sure. In in how many years do you go through? Because you're saying zero to one is where SIDS right. is a big concern, and the- yeah. Well, then from uh, statistics tell us that from uh, from year one through year four, drowning is the leading cause of accidental death. Oh wow. Yeah, I, I've attended a couple of national meetings of the National Drowning Prevention Alliance. It's an amazing group, um, driven in large part by families who've actually had this horrible thing happen, lost, losing a baby or a child. Uh, and when I went to this conference, um, you know, I went there as a, you know, a clinician, someone who'd you know, taken care of drowning victims before, but I'd never been in the presence of people who were as dedicated to helping other families. Uh, not have this event repeated again. Sure. Um, and Must be a lot of passion fueling them. For sure. And yeah. the things that I learned I thought were extremely helpful. And that this came, of course, from uh, some discussion with a lot of experts on drowning from around the planet. Um, one of is that um, one out of five uh, drownings in the pediatric population actually occur in the presence of an adult who does not know that it's happening. And I think what this does is it flies in the face of many of the images we've seen over the years uh, of a drowning victim who's splashing and maybe screaming for help. 
And most people that I've spoken to uh, from, from the, the aspect of you know, who's present and what did they hear or see is that there's no sound and things happen relatively quickly. And um, you can miss it if you're not paying attention. So mm-hmm. our, our focus is s- stay close to that little one. Uh, keep your, your, you know, your eyes on them. You know, obviously, you can wander a bit, but basically stay as close as you can and stay focused because you're not going to be uh, hearing a lot if this actually occurs. Are, are the drownings, are they, are they in pools? Are they in bathtubs? Are they in toilets? Well, first year of life, uh, probably no surprise that infants are more likely to drown where we put them, and that would be in the bathtub. Uh, even with uh, um, an additional bathing device that uh, you know, many, many companies make, um, still, if a baby is not properly secured in it, if they're especially soapy and they're, you know, how little ones are, they like to wiggle around they a lot. Slither around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're just, you know, all over the place. And if you take your eyes off or you, you're too busy maybe texting or, or trying to uh, deal with other issues within the household, uh, whether it's a mom or a dad or, or, or a grandparent or anyone else, um, you lose your focus and it would be it would be unfair and it would be absurd for me to say that those kids always drown. But we're talking about trying to lower risk mm-hmm. as much as possible. And that's what we're about. We're about helping parents try to figure out how they can lower risk to a great extent without going crazy because yeah. we have enough parents who are anxious uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, many uh, – I wouldn't say unnecessarily, but especially first-time parents. They can be very anxiety-producing. And uh, we want to make sure that they understand that stay close, stay focused, and things should be just fine. Well, I, couldn't, I remember sort of terrifying times where I'm alone with a, a baby in a bath and the doorbell rings or something happens like that. And you're just like, maybe I have like 30 seconds to just <laughs> run, get it, and come back. And you're like, yeah. you know, you don't, that's too long of a risk to, you know. It's not worth it. You... It is not worth it uh, because the uh, the physiology of drowning is such that once we go under, um, the airway basically collapses and we we stop breathing. Uh, if you're pulled out, and this is the thing I also mentioned to parents, even though this one to four year old age group is at great risk, and this is of course the leading cause of, of accidental death, uh, infants and small children who are pulled out of of, of the water are revivable. And that's one of the most important things that we get the message we get across. It's not just that revivable by us, revivable by us prior to the arrival of the paramedics. Hmm. Entirely possible. Um, it just has to do with the the nature of things and how how by immediately starting CPR we can reestablish circulation to the brain. You know, you know, and which is of course where all important things happen. Uh, but the purpose, of course, is to get oxygen back into the brain and reawaken those uh, those breathing centers and and get them started to breathe again. This is uh, this is how we distinguish, in fact, uh, pediatric response response to babies and children as opposed to adults who whose problem is typically more cardiac in nature, mm-hmm. where adults is uh, babies and kids are generally more breathing or respiratory in nature. Because of things happening at the brain. No, it's usually a some something shuts off in the brain. In these cases, the cases of drowning or asphyxiation, you know, the 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 brain is just not oxygenated, and basically the baby or small child's heart rate starts to drop perilously uh, low, and they lose consciousness. Uh, now, if it's in the water, uh, if it occurs in the water, um, it turns out that in many cases we've learned that 
Many of these kids don't have that much water in their lungs, but may have quite a bit in their stomach. Hmm. But in terms of the person who's actually there present with that small person, um, it won't matter to you and you wouldn't know you where water anyway. is. That's yeah. right. You wouldn't know. You see a, a person who is essentially lifeless who needs CPR immediately. And one of the things we, we definitely want to get across to parents is that if you're alone with a baby or a child, if you are alone and you're faced with a situation where CPR is indicated, please start CPR first before you call 911. Oh, interesting. Yes, it's imperative that you do that because of the potential revivability. The two factors that will determine survivability in a drowning are one which we may or may not have much control over, and that, of course, is length of time underwater. It is what it is. We find them, we pull them out, but we can't pull these little ones out and start calling 911. There's a, there's a long delay there, and by the time we, we establish that, um, things have gotten further along, and we can, uh, with quick action and you know a little bit of luck on our side, we can actually turn this thing around. Get them breathing again. Get, get them get breathing the again. again, yes. But Even, if not, yes. then how long do you wait before calling 911? Well, the guideline, the Heart Association guideline for this is uh, up to two minutes of CPR. And so, since we use um, a format uh, for most pediatrics of 30 pumps on the chest followed by two rescue breaths, mm-hmm. uh, if you were to do that five times consecutively, five cycles, if you will, of CPR, 30 pumps and two breaths at the speed that we're suggesting, that's roughly two minutes. And the point is this, if they don't revive or respond, let's just put it that way, if they don't at least start breathing or moving spontaneously uh, after about five cycles or roughly two minutes, then it's time to make the call. And we always encourage parents to make that call Put the phone on speaker mode immediately so you can have your hands free. Yeah. And keep your message to the dispatcher uh, who's going to say something like, 911 dispatcher, what's your emergency? And I would say something like, my baby was pulled out of the water or my baby stopped breathing, whatever it was. I started CPR. Get over here now. Mm-hmm. And remind them also that uh, a very small percentage of households now have uh, a landline. Mm-hmm. But uh, at least in Southern California, I'm not sure about other areas, um, landline calls are, are the the old grid has the phone number and the address, address linked. They know where you are. They can they can spot you by that, but not on a cell phone. Right. Um, even with our sophisticated GPS systems, I'm they surprised exactly we don't have that are. working yeah. uh, somehow. Uh, but consider that uh, there are what over 40 million people in the state. Uh, those lines are running constantly. So I have to give the state credit for being able to to function as well as they do. Um, but when we when we call 911, whether we're alone or not, I would put it on speaker immediately so that the voice of the dispatcher, which is critical for people to hear, comes into the room because it becomes part of that resuscitation effort, a very big part. Uh, and it also, we've, we've, when we listen to 911 tapes and listen to what happens when uh, the person starts to, to speak to the dispatcher, there's often a lot of additional screaming and yelling and people, you know, um, and once the dispatcher's voice enters the room, there's an amazing calm that mm-hmm. takes over. A lot and of it, psychological first aid. Absolutely. I've got somebody now in this room who's, who's directing us where to go and how to, how to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, I got to say, we do a lot of podcasts, and this is not the most exciting topic, <laughs> uh, but it's one of the most important topics. I hope and so. 
So I'm learning a lot because it's been a while since uh, I had my youngest. I used to work for the American Red Cross, the uh, sure. the old competitor, yeah. and uh, teach CPR and first aid classes. In fact, I, before we go to the break, I'll tell you this quick story. It was watching a CPR class mm-hmm. when I was young, seven or eight years old, that got me interested in healthcare. Really? I, I sort of asked, what are they doing? And uh, we had Annie there, and we're, they were doing the compressions, and uh, and and just seeing something about seeing how we can save a life, um, somebody else's life. We can have the power with a little education. A little, like it didn't take long. They just said, "Oh yeah, they're going to be here for a day, and they can go save somebody's life." I, I it set off something in my head from that point forward. How interesting! I wanted to take a CPR class, and then I took first aid classes. Then I I did lifeguard, and then I I taught for the American Red Cross. I. 17, I became an emergency medical technician, and 18, started working in ambulances. I didn't know that. And that's how I ended up getting into healthcare as a living. So sure. um, I think it's it's really fascinating and important for all of us, as many people as can possibly uh, get educated on these topics, then the, you never know. I, I have, outside of my work in emergency medicine, outside of right. my work in emergency medicine, have already used uh, CPR. At my brother-in-law's wedding. Whoa, my wife's not the uh, groom. Not the groom. Uh, <laughs> my wife's uh, brother, when he got married, just someone just went down at the smorgasbord, and uh, people don't even realize. You know, yeah. we're doing compressions, and I still hear people being like, "Hey, where are those pastrami breadsticks coming from?" <laughs> and the orchestra, the guy's looking at me like, "What do I do?" He felt like he was on the Titanic going down. He's like, "Do I keep playing? Do I stop?" Any um, appropriate song at this point? Exactly, right. right? Um, I mean, thank goodness uh, a dentist actually walked up to us. And uh, my, my father-in-law and I are working on this guy. And um, and this dentist came came through and had a uh, defibrillator. No. And it's called an AED. Yes. So he ran and got the AED. They put it on the guy and, and a couple of shocks and... He came too, and the medics came yep. right after that. Sure, right. It's after stunning. That. So it's sort of amazing. Um, that's just one example. There's there's been a couple of other examples, both in my own family, one of uh, my kids who choked on something, and an, an adult where I was uh, who choked on something. And the Heimlich maneuver was it, it took a second, but made all the difference in in life for her. So. Um, it's really important, and the fact that you've brought you know fifteen to twenty thousand people, uh, you've turned them into little lifesavers. Um, it's kind of amazing the work that you're doing. I uh, we're going to take a little break and come back because there's a lot more to learn here, and sure. then for sure one of the most important things is I'm going to want to know where we can find you online, okay? So we can learn a lot more. Uh, come right back. We're going to be with Richard Pass on the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. 
Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and we are continuing our discussion about child safety with our guest, Richard Pass. So before the break, we started to talk a little bit about CPR, one of the leading causes of death in toddlers right. is drowning, and that there's a, a really significant chance of saving that child with early CPR, that as soon as they come out of the water, that CPR is able to be begun. Um, how do people learn CPR? Is it difficult to learn? And also, is it different for for like children of different ages, how you do CPR versus adults? Tell me more about that. Yes. Well, I think anyone can learn this. Uh, I, I know they can, uh, because I see people coming into our classes who have never taken a class or have had, it's been many years since they have, uh, many of them are a bit anxious. Um, they, they've had experiences in some cases in other courses where they have been asked to sit through especially long videotapes and discussions and a lot of stuff written on the board and not always that much time practicing the skills. Mm -hmm. uh, to add to that, I think many of the, the approaches we took where we had a whole series of actions that we would have the rescuer do, uh, they were a little adamant in you know, doing things in exactly this particular order uh, and with specific techniques. And I think many people felt like if they didn't do it the way it was taught to them, that there would be a bad outcome. And that they would cause a bad outcome. Or a bad outcome would occur. Something would occur. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not doing it right. Not doing it right. So I'm not going to do yeah, it Yeah. I mean, all. if you talk to people who, who hesitate and, you know, in a public place in particular, and you ask someone why they wouldn't or didn't uh, respond, it's usually, I, I don't know what to do. I'm afraid I'm going to make it worse. And I think in some people's minds, they take it a little further and, and somehow believe that they're responsible for the outcome. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would encourage people to read the California statutes called the Good Samaritan Act and realize that uh, the law says that uh, they consider the rescuer uh, that the rescue itself is an act of mercy, mm -hmm. and one is not responsible for the outcome. Yeah, you're pretty much liability-free unless you do something grossly negligent. That's correct. Which is like, you know, no, nobody does. That's correct. And, you know, you don't have to have some sort of CPR card or certification. You know, that's really only for people who need it for their particular work mm -hmm. or vocation. Um, we talk to people about this all the time. Uh, we don't really need that in order to, to function. And the course that we teach is kind of an umbrella course. It's American Heart Association based, but we call it family and friends CPR. Uh, there are no videotapes. There's no exam to take. Uh, we explain to parents what the real risks are. Uh, and when we get through with that list of, you know, accident prevention and, and all those things, uh, then we get down to the nitty gritty and we demonstrate what this looks like. We remind people that there are really very few numbers they have to remember, that the act of CPR is an act of oxygen provision to the victim's brain. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's and CPR stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. <laughs> right. So, exactly. I mean, what normally happens in the body is the heart is a big pump, the lungs exchange oxygen, so your blood kind of comes up into your lungs, gets a fresh dose of oxygen, dumps off waste product, carbon dioxide, goes back into your heart, and you get a big pump, and all that oxygen gets to every cell in your body. That's correct. Uh, if the pump or the lungs are not working, um, then either there's no oxygen to send around, so you're just circulating blood that has no oxygen, or if the pump is also not working, then there's nothing circulating. Correct. But we can mimic that. We can make that happen. If it's not happening spontaneously, we can sort of make the pump pump, and we can bring oxygen into the lungs. And that's what the sort of essence of CPR. Yes, and we had the experience of some researchers in uh, Arizona about 15 years ago uh, where there was anecdotal information that chest compression CPR without Mm mouth-to-mouth on adults seemed to have a a beneficial effect. Uh, Once it was seen enough, it was then studied. And once these studies were completed, it took a while. But we now have a component, both the American Heart Association and the Red Cross now uh, offer at least an option to do chest compression-only CPR for adults. Is that... Is it better or is it for people who are not comfortable doing mouth-to-mouth? Well, we believed initially that, that it would be a, a, real, a real opportunity for people who used uh, their fear or talked about their fear of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as a primary reason why they wouldn't do this. Of course, mm-hmm. we had this whole sort of AIDS-related scare and this other stuff, which was erroneous. But uh, at the same time, you know, when people do go down, especially when adults go down, uh, it's not unusual for them to vomit. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so it's not. It's yeah. just hard to bring yourself yeah. to do it sometimes. And they may smack their face on the way down, and they may be Blood. bleeding also. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not the first thing I would want to put my face on. And it turns out a lot of people did not, uh, but continued doing chest compressions. And what we realized is that, is that there's enough oxygen being circulated between the oxygen in the atmosphere, which is brought into the body with chest compressions, Um, And the pull of oxygenated blood within the dying person's body itself that's brought up into the heart Mm, from the aorta, that a combination of those two uh, for adults seems to be uh, adequate to at least sustain that adult until the defibrillator arrives. So it's not better, but it's enough. It is enough in many, many cases. Better than nothing for sure. That's correct. And we now have paramedics that I've talked to many times uh, over the years who, when they arrive at a cardiac arrest scene for adults, they will uh, just start chest compressions and do several hundred until the defibrillator is juiced up and ready to go. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, we used to carry around just a little mask on the keychain. Is yeah. that still? People still do that. Um, I Frankly, I don't do it because if I ran into someone who needed CPR, I would do chest compression only CPR. Mm-hmm. The only person, uh, the only adult that I would probably do uh, mouth-to-mouth breathing on as well would probably be the adult drowning victim mm-hmm. because the, the physiologically it may be much closer to what what uh, a baby or a child is experiencing. Um, but one of the things, it's curious, because one of the things that I mentioned to my, uh, my, my students is not to focus on the differences between different sized children, uh, be, be they two, three, four, six, or 10. Uh, don't focus on the differences. There are many more similarities than there are differences. We talk about the fact that there are two life-saving spots on the front of the body. 
One is uh, on the breastbone or sternum, right at the nipple line. Or if you just come from underneath the victim's armpit, straight across to where the breastbone is, that's where all CPR takes place. Mm-hmm. So you don't, ha- you don't have to be fearful about whether you're pumping in the wrong spot. We want you on the bone, pretty much dead center in the mm-hmm. chest. Yeah. And that's true for all victims. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to worry about Regardless that. Regardless of age and size. That's right. I send parents home. I say, when you get home and you're undressed tonight, take a look. That's where you're going to pump on, get pumped on if you needed it, and that's where you would pump on someone else. So get familiar with it. You don't have to waste much time looking for that spot. The other spot, of course, is for the Heimlich maneuver, which is intended for those who are over the age of one, at least the, the Heimlich maneuver that we know, which is mm-hmm. the abdominal thrust. Uh, but the CPR format has many more similarities, and I, I, I focus on that. That's really um, helpful because I think it gives you the, the confidence to act. And we get feedback that, that people who, who left courses in the past and felt even more anxious for fear that they would do something wrong. Mm-hmm. They feel somewhat liberated and, and feel like they could actually make a difference. And therein lies, I think, you know, the possibility of increased lives saved. That's spectacular. Um, I know several of our patients uh, take your, your classes and workshops, and then after a couple of years, they do it again because they want to get refreshed. And, and right. uh, also sometimes the protocols change a little bit, but it's just good to just get a, a redose so it's you know not so deeply buried in your mind. And if you needed to use it, you'd feel more confident leaping into action. Are, are there um, is there equipment or any kind of devices or tools that you recommend that people – bring into their homes when they start to have kids in terms of uh, first aid or or the ability to provide life-saving skills to their children or family? Well, I think the, the course that we offer um, provides them with, you know, a pretty good basis for being able to respond if they need to. Uh, but we don't recommend any particular device for CPR itself. Uh, we do, however, uh, Make, make a pretty big deal about the first aid uh, requirements and that uh, it's entirely possible and likely that uh, you're going to have to render first aid uh, at any time to either a small person or, you know, yourself or possibly a, another adult. So we, uh, we talk about the need for f- proper first aid equipment, uh, save a little life. We make our own first aid kits, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. We have we, uh, when we, just to be more definitive. When we talk about first aid, we're talking about like cuts and and bruises and breaks and stings and burns, that kind of yes, stuff. Yes, yes. A, a few of those items uh, we do cover in class. For example, we talk about the the uh, importance of keeping hot liquids away from infants and small children, just mm-hmm. because of the the seriousness of the burn is dependent on you know body size and and depth. So we talk about that. We talk about the fact that you know immediate submersion in cold running tap water is the only real treatment for a burn, a burn. not to use anything else, mm-hmm. um, and uh, to you know that's to be cautious really, and careful around. That's a really valuable thing yeah. to know. And then there are some others, of course, uh, the kinds of things uh, we see. The, uh, the choking itself, of course, is considered a sort of a first aid response, mm-hmm. and I think parents are probably more concerned about the choking uh, baby or child than they are anything else. And from for good reason. Choking is the third leading cause of accidental death in the pediatric population. Uh, it, the first one is still drowning? Is that well, what drown, drown, drowning is uh, from one to four. Okay. Drowning is the leading. Actually, after four, from four and up, 
uh, automobile trauma or car accidents oh, really? still sort of takes over. That's number one. It's number one, yeah, for a number of years. Number two? But these others, choking in particular, is mm-hmm. is always looming right at number three, uh, depending on, you know, sort of age and so forth. Um, what we talk to parents about is is very important. First of all, to acknowledge that you know human beings have three really good reflexes to help keep things away from our airway: gagging, mm-hmm. coughing, and vomiting. Mm-hmm. And any one, two, three, or a combination of those will kick in very quickly. And we try to uh, encourage parents not to overreact to gagging in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, inf- infants gag with some regularity; some gag more often than others. Uh, but to just change the baby's position a little bit more upright and not really uh, get too excited about gagging. Uh, in fact, if you overreact to gagging, uh, the children sometimes uh, don't quite understand that. And I've had some parents who actually told me that their kids have actually used sort of little fake gags or gagging-like activities uh, to get their attention. Oh, wow. That's yeah, so crazy. we have to kind of watch our own <laughs> response to these things. Yeah. But uh, look, we we need to know if somebody really is in trouble. You know, we need to be able to look in their mouth before we put our fingers in. That's one thing we always want to uh, emphasize. Don't lead with your fingers. Take a look. Pry the mouth open if you have to. Uh, somehow get a look in there and see what's going on. If you can get in, uh, coming in from the side on the cheek, uh, not in the middle, uh, for fear, of course, that you might push something further back. Come in on the side, scoop from one side to the other and uh, do the best you can. And if that doesn't work, uh, we can certainly, for those who are under a year, we get them in a gravity-friendly, you know, head-down position and strike directly between the shoulder blades straight down up to five times. Uh, If that doesn't work, we just basically turn them into a, uh, what we call a supine, or now they're facing upwards, and we push on the very same spot, the CPR spot, up to five times. Both those efforts are attempts to get these materials out. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, parents are successful doing that. Yeah, so that's, I mentioned earlier about a kid choking on a carrot that uh, mm. it was just the striking on the back, um, holding him with his head down and striking on, on that's the right. back. And it just, it, it was very quick how, how it worked. That's right. I should um, mention also that um, we've had some, uh, and of course I hear about some of these myself, but um, material that is not so much solid, you know, a food or even a, maybe a rounded piece of candy or something like this. There are other things. For example, we've lost kids who have little ones who have tried to swallow things like leaves or um, in some cases uh, – Things that are a piece of uh, saran wrap-like stuff, you know, or the stuff that covers dry cleaning. Uh, little ones will put that oh, in their yeah. mouth. They'll try to pull it back. Of course, they'll try to swallow it. So on the action prevention checklist? Uh, well, it's on the choking prevention checklist. Oh, yeah, I see. yeah, for sure. We talk about that. We we cover choking in its entirety. It, it's something that not only the the public demands, but we we understand how important it is, and we remind them that, uh, you know, if someone's you know, coughing. Do you do anything? Coughing is the best thing that could be happening. So you just wait and that's right. Coughing, encourage. That's right. We encourage coughing. And so if they are coughing, I, w- I would not even do anything except watch the effectiveness of the cough. In theory, the Heimlich maneuver itself is an artificial cough because mm-hmm. when we pull the diaphragm inward and then jerk upward on it, we're, we're pushing that muscle which sits beneath the lungs into the b- base or the bottom of the lungs which forces air pockets trapped at the very moment of choking from larger to smaller 
air spaces. And as it reaches upward towards the throat, it picks up energy. And that's the energy that can create that artificial cough. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, we just literally had this happen on Saturday. I got uh, I was taking a little nap, <laughs> and my daughter ran in, and she said, our next-door neighbor's baby is choking. Um, just happened on Saturday. Uh, my wife, who was already awake, uh, got there first. And um, she said when she got in there, they were panicking because he was coughing, but not well. But also there's a little bit of blood. And so the blood made made his parents very, very nervous. Uh, and I don't know, actually, because I wasn't there. I don't know what she did or if she just maybe just encouraged him to keep coughing. But the, the piece came out. It was a little piece of a, of a snack. Sure. And, uh, and it was fine. He was happy to just go about playing and as if nothing had happened. And, you know, what we tell parents— Parents are still traumatized, I think. (laughs) Sure. We just tell parents that, you know, if it's on the floor or within reach, it's going in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can be assured of that. And that's the case for at least the first couple of years. Um, Beyond that, um, you know, we still want to keep an eye on them. I want to mention one more thing because, you know, the laws in California for car seats uh, require that little ones are facing rear for the first two years— and, of course, most of you guys know that infants are eating solids before their first birthday. So part of the uh, – one of the important risk reducers for little ones is to avoid feeding them in the car, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly during those years when they're facing away. Uh, because like drowning in many respects, a choking is a completely silent event. And by the time you recognize it, uh, if you do, um, it may be – uh, way past the point where you can be effective with a simple Heimlich maneuver. And remember, if a choking victim loses consciousness and goes completely out, it's CPR time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So it's important to know. Once someone is lifeless, regardless of Even the cause. Choked, you, it's yes, not Heimlich time. That's it's CPR right. time. Uh, it's at age one when you shift from the back sort of blows into the umbilical? Sure. I'm glad you asked that uh, because, you know, nothing magical happens on birth day one. But prior well, to the first, first year, cupcake, yeah, but. <laughs> really, well, you know, they, uh, the abdominal wall is not really – the muscles of it are not really there to su- support that infant uh, that early stage. They're developing. And uh, so we do have an opportunity after age one, if we're very cautious, we can use – a modified Heimlich maneuver, but I always tell parents that if you can turn somebody over, you can get them in a you know a head down, gravity friendly position. You can strike between the shoulder blackness. blades. It uh-huh. doesn't matter how old they are. And I've had many parents and grandparents and others save lives uh, by just getting these kids over and and doing that. Uh, but at some point, uh, it's probably advisable to learn this other method. So the second uh, life saving spot on the front of the body is. If you put your finger in your belly button and put your thumb on the bottom of your breastbone, there's a space between there. It's, uh, I feel it's about four or five inches maybe for me. And right in there, if you push on it and cough while you're pushing in on it, you will feel your diaphragm. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do also is to be ready uh, in a moment's notice, just like it was someone who needed CPR, to get to that spot. And that spot is just as easy to find on most people as it is uh, – the CPR spot. So I would be familiar with those two spots. Those are the two life-saving spots that we can intervene on and make a big difference quickly. That's really helpful and valuable information. Um, before we sign off, two things. Number one, could you? I know you have a, a kit. 
Yes. Um, of first aid items. What are maybe like the top two or three things that we want to have around mm-hmm. in such a kit? Well, we like to have in, in our first aid kits, we actually have three different sizes, uh, a big family kit and a medium. First of all, I also think it's important to have something in your vehicle because uh, we're you know active people and we're outdoors often, whether we're hiking or going to the beach here in, in SoCal. But you know we may need to respond by having something in the vehicle. It's important. And the things that we stress, of course, are the ability to stop the flow of bleeding. So we have, you know, gauze bandages. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have antiseptics of various forms. Uh, we usually put a little vials of iodine and some other, uh, or just encourage people to use even soapy water uh, to uh, to clean out certain wounds. Clean a wound, prevent infection. That's right. And you know we have I like I like saline solution, sterile saline solution because it's very friendly to the body and uh, it's also very helpful to get things out of little ones' eyes. Right. Yeah. We can we we do need in some cases to really restrain uh, babies and small kids because when something gets in their eye, they immediately go for it and they'll start rubbing and you know if it's something like sand or some gritty material, oh, it can, can damage. damage. That's right. So there are times when, you, as parents, you, we have to actually restrain little ones in order to. And flush. Uh, that's right. And even if it means holding them and holding them under the sink while mm-hmm. uh, you know you flush those eyes out, whatever you can do, you know, do it quickly. We also have you know we have things like ace bandages. We have first aid tape. We have a good quality scissors and a splinter forceps. Are they available online? For, they are like, available. You can order it from anywhere. You can. Yeah, you can. You can. Uh, ours are I particularly think I'm good. I'm going to do that because uh, I certainly don't have one in my car, and that's a great idea. Absolutely. I think it's, it's I important. Went, uh, it reminds me when I went hiking with my son and he fell and scraped his knee pretty bad and uh, I carried him down. That's <laughs> so right. I got an ex- extra good workout that day. And then I got to the car and I didn't have anything. I'd drive to the closest uh, pharmacy. That's so. right. Yeah, we, we think it's important to do that. And uh, first aid skills are, you know, they're, they're pretty simple. Uh, all of our kits come with a, a first aid manual with some oh, simple instructions and a, and a list of what's inside so you know what, what it's for. But we go over those kits with uh, the people who buy them from us. You can get them at our classes or you can get them online at Save a Little Life. Okay. So tell me that one more time. Online, your your website is savealittlelife.com? Savealittlelife.com. All right. That's I will right. be visiting shortly myself. I hope so. We've got a new uh, – expensive website. <laughs> oh, great. Well, well, I'll make good use of it. All right. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for being here. Very, very valuable, informative um, material that you have. Um, I encourage everyone to check out com and to just learn a little bit more because like Richard said, you, you could be, whether it's your family or not, uh, you can be a lifesaver for somebody with um, just very limited amounts of training and information, and uh, they can be a lifesaver for you. So do it and encourage others to do the same. Thanks a lot for listening to the Informed Pregnancy podcast. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you have anything you want to share, write to info at informedpregnancy.com. And uh, share us, too. Share us with your friends and family and followers. And then visit us online at informedpregnancy.com.